Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. Every single week here at NPR Politics and in our daily lives, at the bar, at the grocery store, on the phone with our families and friends, we get asked some variation of this question. When it comes to the Republican Party, given the way the race is going, what is a contested convention or an open convention or a brokered convention? What happens there? What does it look like? Who decides? Well, we found a guy, a guy who can answer all those questions, and that's what we'll do this episode. First, some intros. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. So we have to say up front, this is a conversation about the GOP, not the Democrats. And there is a reason for this. Well, mostly the reason is because there's only two candidates on the Democratic side. So the odds of there being a contested or an open convention are harder. Um, you know, there's it's a more clear system in place for the Democrats. They have this proportional allocation and they, they really do try to avoid uh, something that looks like an open or contested convention. Now, if they do get there, if Bernie Sanders can get enough of those pledged delegates, if he does get there <laughs> a little later in the process, then we'll uh, we'll seek out somebody on the Democratic side who could maybe explain some of this. Okay. And so the guy we talked to to get some answers on all this for the GOP is a guy named Ben Ginsburg. Sue, who is he? Ben Ginsburg is one of the preeminent lawyers for the Republican Party. He is probably best known, uh, Was he was the national counsel for the Bush-Cheney campaign in 2000 and 2004, who oversaw the 2000 recount. He was also the national counsel for Mitt Romney, both in 2008 and 2012. He is not currently consulting for the RNC, although he is the type of guy that the party can often uh, lean on for legal counsel or advice. And he is a lawyer at the Jones Day Law Firm, which we should say uh, is also represents Donald Trump, but he is not connected to that campaign. It is represented by a different lawyer at the Jones Day Law Firm. So he's a big deal. He's a big deal. And he's very he's very well known. He's very well liked within the party. And mostly he gets this stuff. Yeah. And he's a absolute expert on the RNC party rules, the law, and all the questions you may have, Ben is a really good source to answer those questions. Cool. So to set this up, we talked to Ben about what could happen in this increasingly likely scenario where none of the GOP candidates get to the convention in July with that magic number of 1,237 delegates. Uh, this gets nerdy. You have been warned. Uh, the <laughs> first thing to know is that where the party goes at that point, if no one gets 1,237, it totally depends on the rules. And it's the rules the party lays out for itself at its convention. And that takes place just before the convention starts, right? Right. Well, and the rules are important. For instance, there's something called Rule 40B, <laughs> where we said we're going to get nerdy on this. <laughs> this has to do with the only candidate who can become uh, the nominee for the party it can be somebody who's won a majority of delegates in at least eight states. Now, this is a rule that they put in place in 2012 because someone like Ron Paul had gained so many delegates uh, in places where he was he didn't win all that vote. So they're going to reconsider this rule. They could throw it out. Yeah. And the why that's really important is because Ted Cruz and Donald Trump are going to be the only two people going into this convention who have won eight states. So in other words, you're going to have the if this rule is not thrown out, then only Ted Cruz or Donald Trump can be the Republican nominee. Uh, and the other thing that is so interesting is that, you know, uh, a lot of the delegates that are going to go into the convention in Cleveland are unbound, which means they don't they can vote for whoever they want. And then we're, if we could have this multi-ballot system, more and more delegates will become unbound. The system will become more and more unpredictable. I mean, it is a very uh, intricate process, but it's also a process that smart campaigns are already starting to game to make sure that they have an advantage on the floor if we do have an open convention. Okay. 
Uh, so with that, here's the three of us with lawyer Ben Ginsberg with the answers to all of these questions. We start with the question, when do those rules that are so important actually get decided? The process, in a sense, has already started. The Republican National Committee has a standing committee on rules that meets in between the conventions to discuss the implications of the rules. They will prepare what amounts to a working draft. That will be ratified by the Republican National Committee when it meets in Cleveland, traditionally the Wednesday before the convention. And who's in that group? That's the 168 members of the National Committee, three people from each state and territory. So what's passed by the Republican National Committee on Wednesday becomes the working draft that goes to a temporary convention rules committee. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) That is made up of a man and a woman from each of the 56 states and territories, so 112 people. Does it have to be a man and a woman? Yes, it does. What? Indeed. No. Yeah. Why? Because I mean, this is great. It's diversity, but like, that's really well, that's part of that's, that's really the, yeah. it's part of it's part of what makes the Republican Party tick. Okay. So uh, okay. So what so what follows then? You go the one sixty eight to one twelve to. So the one twelve in the temporary convention rules committee will meet on Friday. They'll deal with the draft rules presented to it by the Republican National Committee. That committee can then amend the eight state rule if they wish. Mm-hmm. Leave it the same. Uh, but they have to do something. But you know the people on that committee. Don't know the people on that committee oh. because they're the delegates that are being chosen. Oh, they're I chosen see. two oh. from each state and territory so it's by al- the delegation. So it's also in Cruz's and Trump's and Kasich's favor to influence these delegates, not just for the number of delegate votes, but also for influence on the rules committee? Yes, very important. Okay. And each of the campaigns is stressing this to get their supporters on the rules committee. Very important uh. in the process. Okay. Is that part of what Cruz is trying to do as he's trying to pick off these delegates one by one in Colorado, Wyoming? Cruz and Trump both. I mean, what you saw in Colorado was um, Let's Cruz. catch up folks that don't know what happened in Colorado. Uh, someone want to sure. explain that really quickly? So in Colorado, over the weekend, uh, Ted Cruz was able to win all 34 of the delegates that were allocated this weekend. Part of that was because it was very strong on the ground field operation. They were And there yeah. was no Colorado primary or caucus? So there's so, no statewide vote in Colorado, but they wanted to maintain their convention process and their caucus process so that they could pick them from you know precinct level all the way through to the state convention to then get those folks to go to the national convention. So sort of the opposite happened in Michigan over this past weekend. Okay. The Trump folks and the Kasich folks combined forces and divided up who would get to go to the rules committee. So Ted Cruz kind of lost out. Trump and Kasich paired up. Trump and Kasich uh, paired up. What signs should we draw from that? Uh, I think you should draw from that that this is a competitive and open process. But not like where a VP situation going on here? No, something? I don't okay. think this is okay. VP. I think this was more the people in the individual states sort of uh, okay. wanting to make a statement within okay. that state. In Tennessee, weekend before last, the Tennessee State Executive Committee gets to slot delegates for the various committees. They slotted a couple of members of the Republican National Committee to be Trump delegates, even although they had never before exhibited any support for Donald Trump. So that's an instance of Trump getting two establishment people to act as his delegates. 
The question is, will they be loyal to Trump when it comes time for individual votes on things like rules? Because I feel like lots of people assume once the votes have happened at this caucus or primary, that's it. It's done. It's clear that Trump gets this many, Cruz gets that many. But actually, there's some space left for change to happen. On the first ballot, the votes of the people in the primaries is determinative and binds the delegates. At so, the convention, you're saying? At the convention, yes. So the vote will take place in primaries and caucuses uh, in states. That will determine how many delegates each candidate has on the first ballot. Then the process will take place of who those delegates are. So different states have different number of ballots to which they bind the delegates. So in some instances, uh, delegates will be bound only for the first ballot. That's true in roughly three-quarters of the states. Few other states bind their delegates for two ballots if it goes that far, some for three, and then a small number for however many ballots there might be at a convention. So, I mean, this is obviously a crazy intricate process and we end up now in this year where Donald Trump who seems like he will end up with the majority of votes after all the or contests, most votes most but not, yeah he could have a big chance of not winning the nomination that to a lot of voters and to a lot of Trump supporters seems like it's unfair and hearing this process described it seems some t- in, in some way unnecessarily murky like <laughs> is there any claim i mean like are folks justified to say hey this whole thing just seems a bit fishy well the you know there are a couple of responses to that number 1 is that since 1856 the republican party has had in its rules that the nominee is the person who gets a majority of delegates. And the reason behind that, if you go back and read the history of the rules, is a desire to have at least a majority of Republicans in favor of the person who's the nominee. It's the way the rules have always been. The notion of whether it's a majority or plurality is part of a rule that will have to be passed by the 2016 convention. So the solution... So you mean they could they could lower it? They, they could, could lower it. it. Yeah. The solution for Mr. Trump, it's rule 40 D&E, if anyone wants to, to read them, say that it has to be a majority of delegates. But that can be amended by the convention rules committee and then the convention to be a plurality of delegates. So there's a solution in that. OK, so if we get close to the convention and no one has the magic number, we hear the terms open convention, contested convention, brokered convention. Is there a difference? What is the difference? And, and what are you calling this? Well, I'm not calling it a broker convention because I don't think there are any brokers left in the Republican Party. <laughs> You're a broker. <laughs> I'm broke. I'm not a broker. <laughs> uh, the, the, the reality is it's not clear who's going to be able to command state delegations and individuals like in the old days where a state party chair or a national party chair or a governor would control almost every delegation that came to the floor. I think that is not the reality of of where things are today in the Republican Party. So I think we should not call it a brokered convention. Okay. So then between open and contested, is there a difference? What do they mean? Uh, I think they mean the same thing. Oh. Uh, It means there's not a predetermined outcome. Okay. You might use multi-ballot convention just (laughs) for a third term to to (laughs) throw imprecisely into the mix. Is it possible if someone goes in, a candidate goes in without the magic number that they could still win it on the first ballot? Yes, depends on the math a lot. There will be 
somewhere between 160 and 200 unbound delegates on the first ballot. So uh, they are capable of wooing the 40 days of wooing. From <laughs> now, are those the folks that voted previously for someone like Rubio, or is that in a different number? That's too? a different number. Well, the, the folks who voted for a previous candidate, whether Rubio, Carson, Bush, whoever, who won delegates, you have to look at the laws of the individual states oh. to know if they're bound for the first ballot or not. But most delegates are bound on the first ballot. Most delegates. Even for the name of a candidate who's dropped out. Even for the name of a candidate who dropped out. Okay. So then what is the precedent for this historically? Because there have been conventions where you've gone to first ballot not knowing who's going to get it. This happened before, right? Yeah. The most recent one was 1976 when Gerald Ford was um, was battling Ronald Reagan. There were not a majority of delegates going in who were bound. The Mississippi delegation was unbound. There were brokers in those days. And the Mississippi delegation was persuaded of Gerald Ford's uh, credentials and the fact he should continue to be president or have the chance to be president. So the Mississippi delegation threw its weight for President Ford. Uh, You say persuaded. How were they persuaded? Uh, well, I think that breaks down to the individual delegates. Uh, I believe that there were rides provided on Air Force One. Uh, That's legal? It's legal. Uh, I believe that some wavering delegates were invited to state dinners. That's wow. legal. Uh, I believe that there were um, conversations between Ford aides and delegates about the virtues of Gerald Ford and how he'd be a better candidate for the Republican Party, and that's certainly legal. So should we expect to see the same kind of stuff from Cruz, Trump, and Kasich? Are they already doing things like that? How are they preparing for this possible open, multi-ballot contested convention? (laughs) (laughs) Just to throw all of them in. Yeah, Yeah. just to throw them all in. So I think state dinners are kind of off the table for the Republican candidates this time, which is too bad. But um, travel to Mar-a-Lago uh, uh, would not be improper, I think, under any existing rules. What's the Mar-a-Lago? That would be Donald Trump's uh, luxurious resort and home down in Florida. Wow. Uh, I think that things like travel and meals and subsistence expenses are all perfectly legal. Is money? Oh. Can you give a delegate just cold, hard cash? cash? <laughs> My legal, my legal advice would be that might smell like a bribe to somebody, and so probably not a good idea. And I don't think anyone would would contemplate the actual payment of dollars. Not to, even contemplate. To think. Well, they, I believe <laughs> I believe reporters are contemplating but, it but far it, more than. Okay. But a candidate could pay the travel expenses of all these delegates to come to the convention. They could, you know, yes. they can all but of the the, the they would have to use. It. They would have to Who can use pay for it, legally though? permissible dollars. So can the campaign pay for it? Can a yes. super PAC pay for it? I, I would say that a super PAC probably cannot pay. Okay, for but it. the campaign can. Yeah, and, and remember, all of this is uncharted territory. There's not been a contested convention. Uh, during the same time as these federal election laws were Mm. in place. Uh, There is a statute that prohibits the offer of a federal job to somebody in return for something. So offering federal jobs is off. But telling somebody that, gee, you look like a really accomplished individual and we want you to be a part of what we get going forward once we're elected is certainly permissible Mm. is the thing to talk about. That's politics, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, both... uh, 
Trump and Cruz have staffed up kind of to spearhead this delegate and, wrangling. And Kasich. And Kasich, too. Yeah. Um, who has the best delegate wrangling game from what you can <laughs> see so far? Well, I think it's still early. I think, okay. I think that the Cruz campaign has spent more time on it early. I think the Trump campaign and the Kasich campaign have hired seasoned professionals to help them uh, deal with all the state conventions and executive committees still to come in April and May and early June. So if we go through, we're at the convention, we do a first ballot, nobody gets it. What happens? I mean, does it adjourn? You go, you know, we know you have to go to a second ballot, but like if you, to the best you can, like take us in that room. And what happens if a candidate doesn't get it the first time around? Mirth and mayhem will prevail. <laughs> uh, so what will happen at the end of the first ballot? is that there will be sort of a pause. I would imagine convention officials will huddle. The rules call for at least an hour before ballots because that's the time oh, to get nominated. So there'll be an hour in between first There'll and be at ballot. least an hour in okay. between, I, I believe, and maybe more. As a parliamentary rule, you want to give everyone a chance to talk and discuss and make deals and try and persuade. And who who is that parliamentary, the, the sort of umpire on the field, who makes sure that that process is following rules? That will be set by the convention as one of its first acts of business. So, Who is it usually? Usually it is the ranking Republican in the House of Representatives. So Paul Ryan. So Paul Ryan. Who uh, has been mentioned as a possible dark horse candidate. Well, he has, but that's conspiratorial, so... Okay. We'll come back to that. Yes, okay. yes, yes. But okay, so Paul Ryan is kind of in charge? Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, what happens is the, the convention will choose who its permanent chairman is. They'll also choose who the parliamentarian is. That's usually the ranking Republican on the House Rules Committee because our convention sessions, by previous rule, are done under the rules of the House of Representatives. That's also a rule that can be amended by the Rules Committee, by the way. Okay. The first rule of the Rules Committee is there are no rules until the Rules Committee <laughs> sets the rules. For the rules for the procedure of the convention, yes. Okay. RNC Fight Club. Also, yeah. this might be a dumb question, but like who exactly is on the floor? Like who are all of the groups of people that are on the convention? I'm sh- I know that the delegates are there, but there are also reps from the campaign that are on the floor. Yeah, there are, can you run me through the list real quick? There are a number of uh, passes that are given to other groups. There will be representatives of the campaigns who will each be permitted some number of people to be whips. You'll be able to identify them by the colorful and somewhat garishly colorful hats that they wear. What's a whip? Uh, A whip is somebody who is responsible for a certain number of delegates in a certain number of states to be able to get the campaign's message to them on particular votes or what's happening. Yeah. So them and then who Vote else? motivator as much as uh-huh. it can. <laughs> and so who else is out there? Uh, there'll be lots of officials from the convention. Uh, there will probably be a few passes even to the media. I suspect what? they'll be somewhat. I suspect they'll be somewhat sought after. <laughs> uh, and, and that's really you. You need to limit access to the convention floor. Otherwise, it does become a little bit unruly. Are the candidates on the floor? Generally not. By tradition, candidates don't come on to the convention and certainly don't appear before the convention to every once in a while on the night before their nomination speech to greet the vice president. But the candidates are not historically on the floor. But to be honest, for this session, if it's really contested, 
uh, that president could go out the window. You could see like a Trump or a Cruiser Kasich coming out to try to like wheel and deal? Yeah, I, I mean, I, y- yes, you could see them coming out to wheel and deal. More likely they'll be in a back room uh, somewhere off the convention floor, perhaps at a hotel nearby. So we're we're after the first ballot. No one's got the no one's got the nomination. All these people are on the floor. We're adjourned. You know what happens if we call it back to order for a second ballot? So you call you you will be called back to order. One of the intriguing questions will be what the rules committee decides to do about nominations. Can other candidates be nominated at that point? The answer is maybe. As of right now, as of the rules as they were in place in 2012. Uh, you probably would be able to put in nomination petitions if you could find a majority of delegates in eight states or whatever number this convention decides. If you're a bound delegate, you can't sign somebody else's petition, but about 73% of the delegates will become unbound after the the first ballot, so they could sign nomination petitions for somebody else. So that hour between first and second ballot, or hour or more, right, what are the kinds of deals that might be made? Well, what, like, is there like the last time this happened? What were the kinds of deals that were made? Oh, I don't really know what the specific kinds of deals are. I think, although uh, there's a great desire to think that there are deals. Yeah. In fact, there's more persuasion. Okay. And it's more. This candidate will be the best nominee for the Republican Party. That's why you should vote for him. Or this will matter to your state. I promise to come in and campaign in your state is one of the things that people often ask for. So I think it, is, I think it will be more persuasion of the merits of the candidates than what you would perceive as a But deal. these delegates are party diehards who have been involved in this election for months. If they Haven't they already made up their mind? Like what is the likelihood of them really like – how well, much is, how much are people up to be persuaded at that point in the game? See, I don't think you know who the delegates are yet to know that the party diehards are really going to be elected okay. as the delegates. Okay. So I, I think that the mindset of a convention uh, is usually unique to that convention. And I think what people are thinking after a first ballot that doesn't work, if it goes multiple ballots, then that sort of collective mindset of a convention uh, can be very, very different. Over time. Well, I know you say that you can't offer a federal job, okay? But there's one big federal job that could be offered, right? Vice president. I mean, you think about John Kasich and Marco Rubio coming in. You know, Rubio's got 170 plus delegates. Kasich has 140 plus, maybe some more, uh, depending on how he does in some of these upcoming states. Could we see, is that a reason why some of these guys hold on to those delegates? I don't think it's so much to be vice president, but the tactics of the candidates is pretty interesting. Do you name who you're going to run with in advance, what Ronald Reagan did with Richard Schweiker in 1976, to try and bring more delegates to a ticket? Or do you wait till you're at the convention to see what the the state of the convention is and then offer somebody a vice presidency? What do you think is the smarter play? Uh, I will tell you that on June 8th. <laughs> well, that's when you you have a pretty good yeah. idea what the first what the count what on the, the first ballot will be, uh, and who's voted how and who the delegates are. And then, so when we go back to the second ballot, the the vast majority of the delegates then become unbound, which means they can vote for whoever they want, right? Correct. And then you, is that just that just keeps round robbing around and around the, until you get to the magic number? 
Uh, y- yes, at least in theory. I mean, again, nobody's gone through that. Yeah. So do convention officials and the candidates kind of agree it's better to roll a number of votes on the first day of the convention? Do they decide that a little time would actually heal a lot of wounds and let's like pick up the next day in the morning? And I think that there are lots of sort of decisions that will have to be made on the ground as the convention progresses if it goes to, to more than one ballot. And they've kept, the, the RNC has kept sort of a pocket day, right? You know, they have they could stay an extra day in Cleveland if they need to, if the process stays long. <laughs> well, uh, I, I believe that they are dealing with all contingencies. <laughs> There's something of a question in the mindset of delegates about paying for extra hotel rooms. Oh, yeah. Oh. What about the flight fees? God, you hate extra flight fees and baggage <laughs> fees. <laughs> now, what's about the... my kid has a Little League game on Saturday morning on need to get home. Well, let's, can we go back to what we, we did talk about a little bit? But let's go back to the dark horse thing, the question of the dark horse candidate. So it sounds like there is there is an actual process by which it is feasible. There is a way that it's feasible. Sure. This Walkers is, are that way. Well, this is like the, um, the eight-sided bank shot in a pool game uh, on the likelihood of it. But the way that it would work is that I think after multiple ballots, if a convention could not agree on a majority nominee, that, in fact, the pressure on the delegates to conduct their business, pick a nominee, would get so intense that other names could be put into nomination. So there are a number of ways to get to that point. Maybe that the original rule would allow for a majority of unbound delegates to to sign the petitions. It might be that the standard of if it starts at eight states gets reduced down after multiple ballots. But it would involve, in each instance, some number of delegates signing a petition for somebody who uh, was not one of the three original. So does that mean, though, that Rule 40B, even if they vote for to keep it right beforehand, if it gets so many ballots that they could change that? There is a way for the the convention rules committee to go back into session to change the rules. Uh-huh. Uh, you might write that into the original rule. <laughs> you there's something in the rules that talks about motions to suspend the rules uh, that could be used to go back and rewrite the nominating rules. Now we have to say. Um you obviously worked for Mitt Romney both in 2008 and 2012. His running mate in 2012 was Paul Ryan. And we hear both of those names thrown around as people that could be potential dark horse candidates. As someone who has worked for both of those men, do you think that this is an absolutely ludicrous idea? <laughs> well, I, I think, as I said, that the mindset of a convention changes over time. So the the idea of a white knight candidate who's not currently part of the process is theoretically possible. But again, it's the eight-sided bank shot that it would actually get to that point. Do you prefer white knight or dark horse? <laughs> I prefer I prefer white knight. Okay. Thank white you. knight on a dark horse. Yes. White knight yeah. on a dark horse. There so, you go. Okay. Riding Perfect. into the queue. <laughs> we have talked through all of the things that could possibly happen Based on your knowledge of we so even much, scratched I know, right? <laughs> but one hundred and one yeah, of yeah, what yeah. could this possibly is, happen. This is as much as my brain can handle. <laughs> um, what are like, if you had to say three possible likely scenarios for the convention, can you name the three most likely, and which is the most likely of those three? Like, 
Like sure. if the dark horse is the eight-sided bank shot, yeah. like what, what is are the, the most likely scenario? What's the one-sided bank shot? Yeah. The, the, so there are three. I'll give you three different possible That's scenarios. That's what I want, yeah. One is the clear winner. Uh, I would put more money on that than anything else. We are Republicans. We like things neat and tidy. Uh, there, by by history, you would think that somebody does get to the magic 1237 number, in which case you have a clear winner and a peaceful That's convention. That's scenario one. Scenario one. Peace. So there is clear winner. Scenario number two, let's call the clear cluster. That's that's, unclear. (laughs) (laughs) That's the situation where no candidate is within proximity to getting the majority. So if it's 1237 is the magic number, it's somewhere around 1100 delegates that someone comes in with. That's a situation where there will be all sorts of uh, disagreements and discussions over the rules uh, so that that one candidate or another stands a better chance under the rules. It is difficult in that scenario where the camps get locked in to see somebody actually uh, succeeding in getting to 1237, except after a long period of time. But that's kind of a fair fight. So multiple ballots, though. But multiple ballots. So the third scenario is the party buster Scenario: If you're going to have a clear cluster, you got to have a party buster too. <laughs> okay. Um, so the party buster is when a candidate is within close proximity to the majority but doesn't have it. And if that candidate, Donald Trump, seems the most likely under yeah. the current delegate totals, comes into the convention with 1,200 delegates and needs 1,237, and somehow is denied that 1,200, that's the most contentious scenario. Mm-hmm. Yes. That you could have. But it's going to be one of those three so, just by dint of math. Of those three, which is at this point in your mind the most likely? Clear winner, just so, based on history. Okay. The clear so you think, winner. You think Trump, okay. even needing like 60% of the remaining delegates or so, would is most likely to get the 1237 before? Well, his campaign has said they believe they have a clear path. Uh, I think New York coming up on April 19th is extremely important to that. It's his home state. If he sweeps New York, that gives him a leg up, especially going into the other northeast mid-Atlantic states on April 26th, uh, in which he seems to be doing quite well in the polls. The month of May is a very light month in the Republican primary. Indiana is on May 3rd. That's probably a pretty tough state for him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nebraska and West Virginia are kind of toss-up states Mm -hmm. at this point, I think. Uh, the next week. And then you have Oregon and then Washington. And they're proportionally divided states. Uh-huh. So that's not a particular... That that will put a lot of pressure on the June 7th states. California. California, 172 delegates. Only 13 delegates go to the statewide, statewide. winner. Yeah. Hmm. The rest are, delegate, wow. are CD by CD. So you referenced this a little bit earlier, but how do we get a vice president in this process? <laughs> So the the vice president is nominated under the same rule as the president. So it's a majority of delegates in whatever number this convention decides it's going to be. You need to circulate the petitions for a vice presidential candidate. There is a special rule for vice presidents that say if there's only one candidate whose name is put in nomination, you vote for that candidate by acclamation. There is no roll call. But if two candidates 
manage to get their names put in, then you do go through a roll call in a potential fight again. Hmm. So you could have a contested open convention for a vice Take presidential yes. nominee oh, as you well. You could. <laughs> so a lot of what I hear in the chatter about a possible contested open multi-ballot not brokered convention uh, <laughs> is looking back at the last time these kind of things have happened. You know, 76 or this year or that year. None of those conventions were in the era of social media and the internet and the smartphone how does that change the equation like how like, does it make it harder for a delegate wrangler to wrangle when every delegate on that floor has it's access to a tweeting. smartphone and live tweeting or does it make it so, easier yeah so them. i don't think you know if it's harder or easier because we've never had to okay. do it before yeah. but certainly there are more tools at your disposal yes to contact people on a regular basis. On the other hand, that also is sort of a fertile breeding ground for phantom deals, for bad rumors, for negatives about one candidate or one idea or another. So I think it's a a great question with an unknowable answer (laughs) that if you go to multi-ballots, does social media help or hurt the process, it certainly changes it dramatically so how do from we, anything we've had How do we change it? It's not, it's not a game of telephone anymore. It's a game of what? Game of smartphone. Game of smartphone. <laughs> yeah, imagine, imagine <laughs> just imagine the sort of infrastructure that you've got to build into the arena to be sure nobody's systems crash. <laughs> well, well, I mean, are they going to have enough Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi for yeah. everybody? Well, I think that smart campaigns are looking for alternatives to Wi-Fi. Can you... Figure out another way, close systems. Can I ask you a question? This is more of a personal question. So you have been doing this. You've been an elections lawyer, a campaign finance lawyer. You've been involved in processes across parties and elections. Is this year in this scenario, like, do you feel like this is like your Super Bowl or is this like your worst nightmare? (laughs) Uh, A little both. (laughs) A little both. I mean, look, we all, the, the unanticipated events are kind of just a hallmark of politics generally. I thought I'd never be involved in a presidential recount. Yeah. I thought they were absolutely impossible to take place. Well, lo and behold, one happened. And I think that having this much contention in both political parties with sort of the mix of candidate types who you've got involved makes this year, 2016, clearly a different year from any that we've had before. So that's both exhilarating and terribly frightening. (laughs) (laughs) What advice would you give to the teams and the candidates that are getting ready to duke this thing out? Details really matter a lot. It is a matter of gaming out to the best you can exactly what you're going to need for all the situations that you can find. And that role-playing and gaming things out is really an intricate process. We went through weeks and weeks of it in 2012 when there was a clear nominee and we knew what was going to happen. None of the campaigns this time are going to quite have the luxury of that because, you know, we had three and a half months from the time Mitt Romney wrapped up the nomination to when the convention is. At best, there will be 40 days from when the nominee is known to prepare for the convention. So it's a matter of planning out the scenarios and having the people in place to be able to execute on your strategies and then knowing how to communicate with your team to move the pieces on the chessboard. Yeah. 
All right. So, Ben, on the podcast every week, we do this thing called Can't Let It Go. And it's where we all go around the table and share one thing that we just could not stop thinking about that week. Um, would you happen to have one thing that you can't stop thinking about that Ooh. you could share with us? And you can pick anything from this season. It doesn't have to be this season. week, but it could be like this campaign. What's Is the one thing that's still stuck in your craw? Like, did they, did like, like the RNC rules or anything? So what, what, what sticks in my craw is that we're seem to be debating so much bad information about the, the rules that you, you can already see something that's going to be in play at the convention, which is the use of information to achieve results that may not be accurate going in. So what sticks? What? Why is that something that's sticky for you? Because there's so much bad information. Mm. Not on this out podcast. There about it. Not on this podcast. <laughs> but is, hopefully, this podcast will help clear that. That's up. right. Do you think the bad information though is coming from what? From it, does the RNC not do a good enough job explaining it? Is it the media? Is it candidates saying the rule? The system's so, rigged. So, it. so look, d- discussions about rules is, is similar to uh, what happens when people talk about baseball. Like everybody can manage a campaign better than the manager manage a <laughs> yeah. baseball team better than the manager can so there are tons of ideas it's not dissimilar to reporters when lots of people say why didn't you ask that question uh so i think that's what's really going on the rnc is trying to explain it but it's a complicated system it it's is a so complicated, complicated system you know it's like because not only do you have like the federal process, but it's not like fifty states and and the areas all have their own rules. Yep. Well, it, it, it's bad for the public and good for lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we made it. Thank you for sticking with that conversation. Uh, that's a wrap. Did we cover it all, you guys? Maybe we I, slow clap slow and then clap. some. Yeah, I'll take a slow clap. Yeah, <laughs> this is like it was fun. You know, I enjoyed it. We got to it all, but those rules are really important. I mean, getting to the details, getting to the granularity, that is the stuff that people are going to need to know on the convention floor. And we can pull out of those things to, so that we don't feel like we're, you know, in a turnstile whipping around, not having any idea what's going on. It is also a little mind-boggling that we really did just scratch the surface of right. <laughs> the intricacies yes. of parliamentary process, how rules are written, how they could be amended in real time. I mean, this is just like... So much drama. Okay. <laughs> so much drama. Yeah. All right, we will see you later in the week with our own Can't Let It Goes. As always, you can write the show, share your feedback, send us questions at nprpolitics at npr.org. And thank you for rating us on iTunes. That helps other people find the show. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 